The subtitle for this message is A Groom and a Woman Without a Husband. A Groom and a Woman Without a Husband. And if you would join me uh, in prayer, and we'll engage our text. Well, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would use your word to open our eyes, to enliven our hearts, to draw us close to the Savior, to know you more. We pray this through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If a story begins once upon a time, then we know that it will end and they lived happily ever after. If it's a western and we're told that there's a new sheriff in town, we can expect that the bad guys who've been running things for a while are in for a big change. And there have been underdogs overcoming giants ever since we learned of David and Goliath. We all know these plots when we see them. Well, today's story in John's Gospel is a familiar story to many, but it also follows a familiar storyline that many have never noticed. That storyline actually helps inform our story, and for many it will add new life to an already familiar story. So with no further ado, let's dive right into our text, and we're going to begin reading actually in verse 25 of John chapter 3. Jesus and the disciples had gone into Judea, and there they are, but John is baptizing, and we read in verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what has been given to them or given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. For the the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that He was going, or gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. In other words, He was becoming greater. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but His disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he he had to go through Samaria. Let's pause there. It's a lot to cover. It's just introductory, so let's just briefly look at it here for a moment. It's often suggested that the reason Jesus left 
Galilee, or left Judea to go to Galilee is because of his humility, not wanting to outshine John. Um, Jesus is humble. I'm not debating that point. Um, but I'm not convinced that that was his motivation for this move. Let's take a closer look at what John had to say and why John said it. And that might give us a clue as to why Jesus had to leave and go into Galilee. Jesus and his disciples are in the Judean countryside. Everyone is going to him rather than John the Baptist, even though it's really his disciples that are baptizing. And in John's answer about everyone going to Jesus, he describes the everyone that is going to Jesus as, in verse 27, what is given him as the bride in verse 29. So those go together since brides are given to grooms in marriage. And then it says uh, that... Jesus, that, that this people going to him means that Jesus is becoming greater in verse 30. And as evidence of the fact that Jesus is above all, that's mentioned twice in verse 31. And then Jesus in verse 29 is called the bridegroom three times in that one verse. Now we've already in John's gospel had a wedding with seeming, a seeming unending supply of wine. Now we have a bridegroom. And the bride is everyone that is coming to Jesus. However, everyone who is in Judea is not sufficient as a bride for the one who is above all. He would certainly have a bride that encompasses far more than just Judea. The groom is above all, and he has the spirit without measure. Everyone in the Judean countryside is, is hardly enough to be his bride. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees, in chapter 4, verse 1, knew that, that he himself was gaining and baptizing more than John, okay, which, again, John just described as Jesus becoming greater and receiving the bride, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. He had to go somewhere else also. Jesus is the bridegroom of Israel, the people of God. Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is called Israel is called the bride or the the wife, if you will, of of Yahweh. He's the groom. So when Jesus is identified as the groom, we know he's the bridegroom of Israel. Judea, where all these people were coming to him, was merely the southern kingdom, historically, of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. While the northern kingdom of Israel, the other half, but much bigger than half geographically, was made up of the land that is now called Galilee, now at the time of Jesus called Galilee, and most significantly, Samaria. When Jesus learned about the happenings described by John the Baptist in in chapter 3 that we just read, it signaled to him that the time had come to begin pursuing his bride. That's why I think he left to go to Galilee, and that's why I think he had to go through Samaria. He's pursuing his bride. You see, in chapter 2, verse 4, we read when Jesus responded to his mother, my hour has not yet come. It hadn't yet come. But in chapter 4, verse 23, he says it now is in the story that we're about to read. So it had not come. It now is. And I think what signaled to Jesus that the hour was coming, that the hour was upon him, was that all the people in the Judean countryside are coming to him. And when we read what John says about it, it's a clue. It's time for the wedding. It's time to commence this very reason, this very mission for which you came. 
And so indeed, he does have to go somewhere. And in verse 4, we're told he had to go through Samaria. Now, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? I mean, he must go through Samaria, we're told. Was it the only route? That's certainly debatable. Good Jews, like the Nicodemus sort, found alternate routes all the time. So it's not as if he had to because it's the only way to get there. might have been the most convenient. So is that what he's referring to? He had to because it was more convenient? Well, no. I mean, certainly convenience can't rule the day here, I don't think. I propose that Jesus was compelled by his Father's will. Remember in chapter 4, we're going to get to it, but if you're familiar with the story, Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of God, which in this case was to pursue this woman at the well and these Samaritans so that they might know him, to seek true worshipers. So Jesus is compelled by the Father's will. Now that his hour is beginning, he has a mission to accomplish, a bride to woo, and it involves Samaria. So, with fresh intimations of Jesus as the groom, we pick up as Jesus arrives in Samaria. And that leads us to the second part of the message, a well, a woman, and a promise. And that begins in verse 5 of of John 4. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, if you were with us during our study of the book of Genesis this past fall, this scene may seem familiar to you. That's because it follows a pattern of a common type of story. I'm going to call that type of story, find a bride at a well stories. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the way you found your bride, I'm sure, right, gentlemen? Just go to a well, find a, you know. <clears throat> you may recall that Abraham sent his servant to find a bride for Isaac. He travels to another country, arrives parched at a well where he finds the bride, Rebecca. Jacob goes in search of a bride to another country, arrives midday at a well where he too finds a bride, Rachel. And then, of course, let's not forget Moses, who travels to another country in order to flee from Pharaoh. There, sitting at a well, he finds his wife also, the not-as-well-known Zipporah. The storyline is really quite simple. The groom-to-be, or somebody representing him, travels to another country, encounters a girl at a well, then one or the other of them draws water from the well, after which the girl rushes home to tell everyone about him, followed by their wedding. That's how the story goes. It's really simple. And we come upon this account of Jesus the groom traveling to Samaria, another country, and arriving at a well parched where he meets a girl. I think we know the rest of the story. One of them draws water and gives it to the other. Then the girl runs home, tells everybody about him, and they get married. Or is that how the story goes? Well, let's follow it a little bit and see if maybe we can pick up on that somewhere along the way. It's interesting to note that Jesus asked the same question, slightly less verbose, as Abraham's servant asked when he arrived at the well and Rebekah came. Please give me something to drink. Please give me some water. Draw some water for me. 
However, unlike Rebecca, this woman does not provide an endless supply of water. But Jesus will. Jesus will. In that regard, Jesus is more like Jacob, the mighty one who, lifting the stone uh, single-handedly in the middle of the day, provided water for those that were there, and especially for Rachel and her flock. The Samaritan woman. Why did she arrive at noon? We could speculate about her emotional or psychological reasons for coming at noon, but those are probably more to do with us and our culture than they are to do with her. So let's not speculate too far with that. The important issue, at least according to John's gospel, I think, is that Nicodemus came at night and she comes at noon. He came in the dark, she comes in broad daylight. When the sun is at its brightest, she is evidently not afraid of her deeds being exposed, unlike him. And they will be exposed. Nicodemus was the most likely candidate we saw last week in John 3. The most likely candidate for entering the kingdom, but he cannot enter. And she is, as we will soon see, the least likely candidate. And yet, as we will also see, she will enter. He has something to hide, so he comes in the darkness. Oddly enough, she has nothing to hide, or at least not in her mind, even though she might have plenty according to how we read it, but it comes in broad daylight. We're not told her name, so if you'll pardon me, I'll just keep referring to her as the woman or a woman throughout this sermon because I don't know what else to call her since that's all she's called in the text. A woman of Samaria, like the mother of Jesus in John 2, whose name John never mentions in his whole gospel, we're only told of this woman's relationship to a man, or men in her case, and that comes in part two of this story. The woman's first response to Jesus when he says, give me something to drink, the woman said to him in verse 9, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's there in case you weren't aware of that. They're, They're telling us what the issue is here. You're a Jew. Her understanding of of who Jesus is will grow throughout the scene. It starts, though, with her knowledge of Jesus according to the flesh. You are a Jew. That's all she can say about him at this point. As such, she thinks that he should not associate with Samaritans and nor with a woman. And this begs the question, how do you, since you are a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? You're breaking... With every convention. You get that, don't you? You're breaking with every convention. You, you understand that, she would be saying to him. I mean, implied in her statement. Well, let's look at Jesus' first response. Jesus' first response is about her need in this first half of the scene. Got this scene falls into two halves, and you've got a, a, a third or a second scene that is part three, but this scene falls into two halves. Jesus' first response is about her need. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. Water that's alive. Living water. The, The significance of this statement must not be missed. First, Jesus says that had she asked him for living water, he would have given it to her. Now, that's an important thing to to not miss. 
Now, she would have asked had she known who he was. Had she known what the gift was and had she known who he was that was asking. But she did not know him and therefore she did not ask. But had she asked, he would have given it to her. He says that even knowing what he knows about her marital history that will come out in part two of this scene. He still says, I would have given it to you. He, he didn't say, had you asked me, I would have told you some things you need to do, and then eventually I would have given it to you. No, you ask, I'll give it to you. Second, there's a promise hanging out in those words. There's a promise in that. What's the promise? If you ask now, I will give. That's implied in what he's saying. If you ask me, I will give. If you had asked, I would have given, but that implies the promise. If you do ask, I will give. Well, let's look at the woman's now second response to what Jesus says. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also uh, his sons and his livestock? She evidently thinks he's talking about maybe reaching the spring that somehow feeds this well though the well itself is probably a bit of a a stagnant kind of water, and a a spring would actually be water that's flowing and fresh, and maybe that's what she takes living water to mean, because she somehow thinks if he had the right tools, that maybe he could get to this water. First, she unwittingly addresses him as Lord, but she only means it in the very mundane sense of sir. But that's at least a step up from you are a Jew. Sir, we've gone from you are a Jew to sir, which, by the way, Jews and Samaritans, that the term Jew or Samaritan in the lips of the other would be a derogative term for the other. Then she asks a rather practical question that reveals that she doesn't understand. You, you don't even have a bucket. How and where are you going to get this water, in effect? But at least she's curious, and the curiosity has her attention. Never mind that he is a Jew. She continues, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, without knowing it, she's, she's on to something. She's either asking this mockingly, are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? Or she's beginning to recognize that Jesus is inferring something much greater than finding a bucket. And she's somehow curious as to what he's talking about. Is he claiming that or is he claiming something else? Either way, Jesus' second response or answer to her in the first half of this scene, in verses 13 and 14, it is about his ability to meet her need. He first spoke about her need. Now he's going to speak about his ability to meet her need. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, I will, uh, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. <clears throat> How will this living water make a person never thirst? Well, it will do so by becoming in them a spring or a fountain of water that is continuously, continuously coming to the surface. It's like a spring. It keeps bubbling up out of the ground. It's constantly satisfying that person. It's eternal life in them. It's a constant supply of water. Water which is so essential to life. Now, 
We don't live in a, a, a world like that where you have, you know, our, we have running tap water. They, they, they had to go and get water. Water was precious. Droughts, I mean, they were, they were immediately impactful, unlike in our world. Uh, so for those that can't relate to this desperate need for water and how essential it is for life, let's just change the metaphor a little bit. Think coffee. I'll give you an endless supply of coffee. No, I'm kidding. But <clears throat> Does this imagery of living water have any Old Testament background? Is it, is it relevant? <clears throat> if it does have Old Testament background, is it relevant to what's going on here? And the answer to both of those, I think, is yes. Ezekiel, in describing... The, uh, a then future temple, which God promised to build after the restoration from captivity. You know, Ezekiel's writing at a time when Israel has been sent into exile. He speaks of a time when they'd be restored. And, and, and he speaks of what would, in his time, be a future temple. <clears throat> and he describes it in some rather otherworldly terms. He certainly didn't have Herod's temple in view. This temple it was to be a source of living water. It describes water flowing out from the temple, becoming deeper and deeper, wider and wider, until it was a great river that could not be crossed, flowing down from the temple through the Arabian Peninsula, which was a tri-parched land, a, a land that was Israel's wilderness wanderings. That's where they were. And then flowing into the Dead Sea. What happens when this living water flows into a desert or into a Dead Sea? Well, let's read verse 8 of Ezekiel 47. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. It's living water. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Eglin. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Fruit trees, uh, verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. The water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Now, that's living water. And it's living water that Jesus is offering this woman, and I would say that it's the same living water that Jesus is offering her. Jesus is the one who gives the living water, and therefore Jesus is the new temple that Ezekiel was speaking about. Well, that shouldn't surprise us entirely, because in John's gospel, we've already seen that Jesus is God tabernacled among us, so he's like the tabernacle in the wilderness. That in, in John 1.14, that he is the Bethel of God, the house of God in John 1.51, that his body resurrected will be the resurrected temple um, <clears throat> in, in chapter 2, and I think it's verse 19 through 21. The temple has to do with worship, we found out as we, we were looking at that. And this text, as we're going to discover, has to do with worship. Jesus is Ezekiel's promised temple that gives living water. Now, that has tons of ramifications for other aspects of your theology, but I'll leave those to you for the moment. Let's look at the woman's third response. In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I, I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. What did she just do? She asked Jesus for living water. 
This first half of the scene began with Jesus asking her for a drink, and it ends with her asking Jesus for a drink. What had Jesus promised? If you ask, I'll give. She asked, so he will give. How will Jesus give her living water? Well, that's what the second half of the scene is about. So let's look. Jesus gives living water. Verse 16. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, in order for Jesus to give her living water, there's something he must do. He must reveal himself to her. Because that if you had known who it is that asked you for a drink, that, that's an important part of her getting living water. So she has asked, but, but, but now he must make sure she knows. In order to do so, he makes another request. He started with, give me a drink, back at the beginning of the first scene. Now at the beginning of the second half of the scene, he says, go get your husband. The woman's response, her first response in part two of the scene, verse 17. I have no husband. It's both the truth and it still lacks full exposure. It's a bit of a dodge. Today, most people in her situation may simply have gone and gotten their live-in boyfriend. Because in their mind, it's, it's essentially the same thing. But it's not, by the way. Married is a lot like pregnant. You either are or you aren't. Well, we were almost married. How are you almost married? You're not almost pregnant. You are or you aren't. Well, married's the same way. There is and there isn't. It's, it's either you are or you aren't. There's no almost about it. We could go on about that, but we won't. <clears throat> Jesus' first response, once again, as in the first half of the story, in the second half, likewise, his first response is about her real need. To, so to reveal it, he presses further in the middle of verse 17 and 18. He recounts her history of marriages and the man she is now living with. Now, it's important to make this distinction. We do not know why she had five husbands. We we are quick to assume that she was immoral and therefore had five husbands. Now, why we're quick to assume that is probably has more to do with us than her, but we're quick to assume that. We don't know if she was widowed by any of them or all of them. We don't know if they abused her. We don't know if they found somebody else and abandoned her. And we don't know if she was immoral. And it is clearly not the point of the story for us to know her background in those five marriages. Simply that she was married five times. We do know that she was now living with a man. And we know that that was sinful even in Samaria, not just Judea. Okay, that was wrong. Maybe after five marriages, she just figures, what's it matter? It's going to end anyway. I don't know. Maybe the last husband left her without giving her a certificate of divorce, so she could not legally get married. Yet her only other alternative was to starve to death. So she's living with this guy but can't get married. Would rather, but we don't know. Probably would feel rather guilty about that either way. In that culture at that time... There's no question. She needs a husband. And all she's got is an anemic substitute. 
Go get your husband. I have no husband. But that's what she needs. That's her need. And Jesus is speaking to her need. The woman's second response in this half of the scene. Verse 19. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. (laughs) First it was... You're a Jew. Then, sir, in a very mundane sense of the word. Then, sir, with a bit more respect. Now it is, sir, maybe she means Lord. I see that you're a prophet. By the way, the word sir and Lord were the same word in that language. So you, you, you have to kind of think, what, what, what's going on? Is she, is she adapting her sense of the word as she goes to the more common sense of Lord that we see in Scripture? She's beginning to see. I think she's beginning to see at this point like the blind man that Jesus heals. And at first he sees men walking around like trees, you know. It's like they look like trees, but I see them, you know. And then he touches them again. And the next thing you know, he, he sees clearly. Right now she's seeing trees. Verse 20. And, and since, by the way, I'm talking to a prophet, I've got a question for you. Our Samaritan fathers worshipped on this mountain, pointing to Mount Gerizim, which would have been in view from where they were. <clears throat> But you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place, meaning the temple. In Jerusalem is the place. That place would be the temple where, where we must worship. Now, there had been a Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, um, but it was destroyed by a zealous Jewish leader about 150 years prior to the scene. So time frame, think Civil War, you know, go back 150 years, you're pretty close to the Civil War. And I don't know if you've noticed, that's still pretty alive in people's minds in our culture. And believe me, that... That destruction of their temple on Mount Gerizim was still very alive. And that's where they still worshipped. The temple was gone, but they went there to worship. And probably every time thought, those stinking Jews destroyed our temple. Or something to that effect. Her question springs from either honest interest or a desire to change the subject. One can't be certain, but without indicators to the contrary, I will assume it's genuine. Mainly because even though Jesus is exposing her life, she remains right there before him in the light. And she's about to get more light. Honest question or not, Jesus answers it. Now, his second response in this scene, or this half of the scene, like his first response, uh, or his second response in the first half of the scene, is about his ability to meet her need. Woman, verse 21, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will... Worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit or in Spirit and in truth. Jesus makes a request, go get your husband. Then he responds, speaking about her need. You're right in saying you have no husband. In fact, the man you're with, etc., etc., isn't. In other words, you need a husband. Now he speaks of how he meets the need, true worship. You see, true worship is how he's going to meet the need. In the first half, it was living water was how he's going to meet the need. But true worship is where we find living water. True worship is where we find, at the the temple that is Jesus Christ, we find living water. A future time, he speaks of in verse 21. One day, 
this question about which mountain to worship on will be meaningless. But it isn't meaningless yet. Verse 22, right now you worship out of ignorance. Jews have the knowledge of the truth. The Samaritans had only the first five books of the Old Testament, and those were heavily edited. The Jews had the law and the prophets, all of which pointed to Jesus. That showed the way of salvation. The Samaritans did not have the, 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 the light that showed the way of salvation. The Jews did. Jesus is the word which became flesh. Not the Samaritan word alone, but the Jewish word. So that is a significant issue. Back to the fu- that future time that he spoke of that, that is coming. A time is coming, and oh, by the way, it now is, in verse 23. Now, I looked up that word now in Greek, and it actually means now. (laughs) That's helpful. Clarified it for me. Now. Not the past, not the future. Now. Now is. Right now. It's right now because even though the time is coming in the age of the Spirit after Pentecost when Jesus sends the Spirit, we were just told in chapter 3, verse 34, that Jesus had the Spirit without measure. So as long as He is in front of her, it now is. It now is because He's right in front of her. It now is because His hour has come to begin pursuing His bride. It now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, or in Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in Spirit and in truth. Now, the American cultural interpretation of what Jesus says here is this. You know, you don't need to go anywhere to worship. You just need to go within yourself, for true worship is that which comes from your heart and doesn't have anything to do with anyone else. And sadly, many professing believers have bought that lie. That is not what Jesus is saying. That is not what he is saying. As one commentator wrote, and I think accurately, it would seem odd if in conversation with the Samaritan woman, Jesus were to urge her to look within, as it were, for the strength and capacity to offer true worship. True worship is a reorientation of one's worship through and in the presence of God in the living temple, Jesus, and in the realm of the Spirit. You see, in the New Testament, we see this walked out and experienced in the gathered community, otherwise known as the church, where Jesus is in their midst. Wherever they gather, I'm in their midst. Where in the Spirit, He's in their midst. And so they'll be worshiping In spirit, not at this place or that place, but all over the world where they gather and Christ is in their midst. That's where true worship is. That worship which occurs through Jesus Christ as the curtain which has been torn that we might enter into the holy place. Having been cleansed from our sin by the blood of Jesus. Holding fast to our confession and to our hope but not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Hebrews 10. Jesus is now and forever the place for true worship. Worshiping in and through Jesus isn't just a matter of going to the beach for worship. It's a matter of following Jesus, and that always involves uh, being in a committed group of Jesus followers. Flawed followers, yes, but followers nonetheless. Jesus says that the Father is seeking worshipers. 
that the mission of God is ultimately about worship in and through Jesus. You could describe the three scenes before us today, or two scenes, uh, if you will, as being about evangelism, worship, and mission. With worship at the center. Evangelism, worship, and mission. With worship at the center. Well, let's look at the woman's third response in verse 25. <clears throat> the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Even the Samaritans had a messianic hope. It was focused on the second Moses who would come, the one like Moses, and their hope was that he would restore true worship. Isn't it interesting that Jesus brings up true worship? Jesus' talk about true worship stirs this up in her, and now she expresses her hope. I know he's coming, and he'll answer all our questions. Well, Jesus now gives her living water in verse 26. Then Jesus declared. Remember, she asked, so he promised, and now he's going to deliver. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, to emphasize a point that John's gospel makes repeatedly, let me read Jesus' answer, woodenly maybe, but quite literally. I am. I am. The very one speaking to you. That, that I am. This, the very one speaking to you. I am. I am surely meant to her. I am he. But, but Jesus uses the answer that God gave Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked, Who shall I say sent me? I am. Tell him I am sent you. Jesus says, I am. She asked for living water and now he's given it to her by revealing himself to her. This second half of, of this scene begins with Jesus requesting, go get your husband, and it ends with Jesus declaring, I am he. Indeed, he is her newfound husband. She is his bride. Like the unnamed mother of Jesus in John 2 was representative as well of Israel, we saw there. I think the unnamed woman here <clears throat> is, is the unnamed, it represents the church. In, in, in the broader picture that would include not just Jews, but a broader swath of people. But, but find a bride at the well stories. They end when the bride gets, goes to get the family, and they all come back to meet him, and then they have a wedding. Well, let's see if that happens. Verse 27, the mission and the bride. <clears throat> just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or what do you seek? literally. Uh, why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman came, or went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, even though talking with a woman was a bit unconventional, no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Now, I don't know about you, I find it a little odd that John chooses to tell us what they did not ask. Well, there's probably a hundred other things they didn't ask, but why did he choose to tell us these two things that they didn't ask? I mean, they didn't ask him what he wanted for dinner. They didn't ask him if he had gone fishing lately. They there's a lot of things they didn't ask him. You want to get in the boat? They didn't ask him that either. But why these things? <clears throat> I think there are two reasons. First, to point out that none of the disciples were suspicious of Jesus' motives. They had no reason to be. Or for the, and for that matter, they didn't need to know why he was talking with her because Jesus habitually broke convention and talked to whomever he wanted to. So though they were a bit surprised, they, they, they didn't need to ask. Secondly, and I think maybe more importantly, 
since Jesus had just gotten through saying the Father seeks such worshipers, now by telling us what they did not ask, they did not ask, what do you seek? It clues us into what Jesus is actually doing. Jesus is also seeking true worshipers. That's the Father's will. He seeks true worshipers. So Jesus meets us to do the will of God as he was about to tell them. That's what he's doing. He is seeking true That's why he's talking to her. He's seeking true worshipers. Then notice that she leaves her water jar in verse 28. Now she came with the water jar. Why? Because she needed water. But it's evidence that her thirst has been satisfied. She came seeking water. She left never thirsting again. She doesn't need this water jar anymore. Just leaves it. <clears throat> she also provides us in verse 29 with a good example for evangelism. Most people's tendency, despite their past lives, once they, they come to know Jesus, is to tell everyone everything they know, especially the people they know. They'll go and tell them everything. Hey, he's this, he's this, he's this, he's this, as if they've now got it all down. <clears throat> now, of course, that's not how many of us came to know Jesus. We had questions, we got answers, we were drawn in by the Savior, and so was she. Given her history and her lack of credibility, imagine the response she may have gotten had she come and said, I found the Messiah, like Andrew did with Peter. But Andrew's relationship to Peter was probably quite different than hers to these townspeople. Rather, she, she tells them her experience and asks, could this be the Messiah? She asks a question. It does us well to ask questions that are open-ended, that allow people to think in our evangelism, not just to tell them everything, just to posit questions, just like we came to know. What kinds of questions might they have? And let them think about the answer to that. And then follow up with that. Now, while the people are making their way to Jesus, sandwiched in between when they leave to go to meet Jesus and when they arrive, we have this piece in verses 31 through 38. We're not going to read it today. But it's a conversation that's all about mission, the mission of the disciples. That will be fulfilled once the, the church has begun. They'll go into the world. It tells us that this scene is really about the future mission. And, and, and it lets us know that the bride that Jesus seeks is the whole harvest. Not just those who show up that day or the, the time in Judean countryside, but the whole harvest. And then he closes out that scene as the Samaritans are pro approaching in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. He abided with them two days. They urged him to abide with them, and he abided. He remained with them two days, a word that's used throughout John for Christ's relationship to his people. 41, and because of his words, many more became believers they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is, it's a profound revelation, the Savior of the world. Now they return, according to the pattern of find a wife at the well stories. Remember, she runs off to tell everybody about the man she met. She does, and then she brings them all back to the well. The only thing left to complete the story pattern is what? A wedding. They urged him to stay, to remain, to abide with them, and he abides with them for two days. Just as Jesus, the groom, abides with us, his bride, the church, and we entrust ourselves to him. He, he lingers for an extended period of time to represent the fact that he is now joined to them. I think we do have a wedding right there. 
Christ and his bride, the church. He came into the world. The world did not recognize him, but to those, to those who do, he gives the right to become children of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind son in order that, to save the world. Now these Samaritans receive him as the Savior of the world. Jesus invites you <clears throat> to come to him. And in, in the full light of day, he offers you living water. And he makes a promise. If you ask for living water, he will give it to you. He may draw you further into the light as he did that woman. You may have some questions that you want answered, and he is patient with those questions. But at the end of the day, he reveals himself as the Savior of the world and the one to be worshipped, and through whom true worship is found. If you knew the gift of God and the one who asks for a drink, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you living water. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Do you want this living water? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make yourself known to all those in, our, here, in my hearing today. Give us desire for the living water that we might ask. Draw us in who you are and help us to come to know you as Savior of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.